0: I got a message for a fairly tempestuous time and you remember that tempestuous time in Makkah a couple of years ago, the cyclone came through. That's an actual picture of what happened here and what it was like here. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul also in a tempestuous time. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we look into the story of uh, your greatest ever evangelist traveling around the world and and the things, some of the things that happened to him today. We pray that there will be great encouragement in that for each of us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you feel as though you are in the center of God's will? If Jesus came in the middle of this message, would you be completely prepared to go. And when you try to assess that for yourself, how you stand before God, and whether you think God's pleased with you or is not pleased with you, how do you assess that? And many people assess it by thinking about the things that are going well and they weigh that up against the things that are not going well and they say, well, on the balance, my life is in the positive. And do you look at the circumstances of your life as evidence when you're weighing up and assessing whether God's pleased with you or not? And in this message, which is the last one from the book of Acts, for for the time being, we're going to encounter a very common way of trying to answer that question. An error of thinking, and the thinking is that you can tell whether a person is in the will of God or not, or how sinful or how sinless he is, by the misfortunes of life. By their circumstances. And people will make a snap judgment about whether you're being obedient to Christ about your level of holiness by looking at what's happening to you at the trials and tribulations you're going to go through. And so, and we'll be in Acts 27 and 28 today, Acts 27 and 28. We've got there the greatest evangelist the world's ever seen, the Billy Graham of Billy Grahams, the Apostle Paul. He's in extreme circumstances, which are very obviously misfortune and disaster, things going really bad for him. So the question is, does that mean he's not in the will of God? So there he is. He's been escorted as a prisoner to appear before Caesar. Right, let's see if my clicker works. Yes, the story's about two X in a hurricane. So, here's the situation. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. And when they'd assembled, Paul said to them, and this is describing a situation, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, nevertheless, I was arrested and I was handed over to the Romans. And they examined me And they wanted to release me because I wasn't guilty of any crime deserving death. Sounded good. But, but the Jews objected. And so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly didn't want to bring any charge against my own people. And the way that the world thinks about religion is that you worship a God and that God in turn is meant to look after you and keep you out of trouble. And if trouble does still nevertheless come upon you, then your God's weak, he's powerless, and you should abandon him and go look for a stronger God. And it's the sort of consumer mentality that you can buy a God as an insurance policy against evil. And when bad things happen, you can ask, well, why did God let this happen? Bad stuff shouldn't happen if God's all loving He can't be powerful enough, so I can't believe in him. And so in reaction to that worldly way of thinking, that God is your bodyguard and he answers to your orders, we've got this story of Paul. And in this story, he's got this point. He says, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a bit different, isn't it? Do you know, the world's just trying to cope. People talk about their coping mechanisms. And so many of them say, oh, I'm a victim. I might be a victim of the male patriarchy, of white privilege. I might be of minor gender binder labels. The list of things I think they're victims of is endless, and they just want a God to help them cope. But Paul says, as believers, we're not just trying to cope. We are more than conquerors. And there's a certain aspect of the body of Christ who have still got a lot of that bodyguard view of God, and they say, yes, preach it! Kingdom of God dominance, baby! We are more than conquerors! Well, we're going to try and put that idea with reality today. Because you know, when Paul said, we are more than conquerors, do you know what he said just before it? For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered the sheep to be slaughtered. And he's basically saying that the circumstances of your life cannot be used as evidence to decide whether you're in God's will or not in God's will. If things are going bad, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to look through your life carefully and work out, what did I do wrong, who did I hurt, what do I need to fix up? Your sins and your bad decisions are not the only factors. Sometimes they are the factors, but they're not the only factors which are involved in how successful your life is. And so when disasters seem to follow you around, as we have seasons of that, there is, in those seasons, a superior attitude, there's a superior knowledge, there's a superior source of power to cope, a a serious understanding which will enable you to face those disasters with that attitude of Paul's, a conquering attitude. And it is the love of Christ for us the love of Christ for us. Because when we know by faith the objective reality, it's a truth, that Christ loves us and gives us salvation through faith in him. And when we commit ourselves to return that love to, that he's shown to us when he died on the cross to pay for our sins, when we experience in our lives the love of Christ, We find that knowing that love, living in that love, living out of that love, spreading that love around wherever we're able, that's the foundation and it's the bedrock which enables us to have that attitude of being more than conquerors over every force in this fallen world which wants to separate us from the love of Christ. Being more than a conqueror means we live in this world of misfortunes with a higher perspective, with the perspective that none of those misfortunes can ever cut us off from God's love. We can know in our hearts, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And in our passage there, Paul lists a whole pile of things that try to separate us. It's a long list. And he measures them up against the love of Christ and he weighs them against the value of the love of Christ. And he assesses the dangers they contain and their capacity to interfere with or prevent us getting the love of Christ. And then he gives this assessment of it. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And knowing the reality of the love of Christ in the depths of your heart is the conquering attitude, which enables you to cope with anything. And here's an example of anything. Neither death nor life, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And he says that in a situation where he's been slandered by the Jewish countrymen, where he's been falsely accused and he's down to his very last trump card, the right as a Roman citizen to appeal directly to Caesar if the local courts are corrupt. And I know I get really upset when people just carelessly spread half-truths about me, but I can't imagine how I'd feel if... I was put in prison just because someone didn't like me expressing my Christian views. Hold on, that's actually happened in Australia, isn't it? In the court of public opinion, take Israel Folau, for example. But Anyway, back to Paul, an innocent, and now he's a prisoner to a centurion. He's on his way to Rome. Was he in the middle of the will of God? If you look at his circumstances, you wouldn't say so. But there is a clue in chapter 27, verse 23 and 24. And last night he says, An angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And so God's confirming a particular call here, that God has a plan. He has to stand trial before Caesar. This little Jewish rabbi has a God given opportunity to take, think about this, to take the gospel to the very heart of the Roman Empire, to the head of that empire, to Caesar himself. And the mission to take the gospel to to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world will be fulfilled, for for Rome was considered to be the uttermost parts of the world. So let's get into the story now. Story of resilience from a man who has his perspective securely bound to the love of Christ. Chapter twenty-seven. Story goes like this. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us, and the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Well, that's a bit unusual from our perspective, but back in those days, if you are a prisoner, uh, you didn't get all your food and lodging paid for you by the government, by the taxpayers. People, You had to get your own, even if you're in jail, you still had to get your own food and drink. And uh, we're seeing that little bit there that uh, he was given a bit more freedom than the average person because, you know, He wasn't really a bad guy. So what happens after that? From there we put out the sea again and we passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us so they went on to the other side of the island. That's the Lee. And when we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia we landed at Myra in Laetia. And if you're wondering what are all those places? There they are. So
1: they've
0: gone around Cyprus, and they've ended up in in Myra, up at the top there. These days, if you want to travel internationally, you go and book a place on the passenger ship, don't you? In those days, they didn't have passenger ships; they had cargo ships. And so, uh, <coughs> if you wanted to go somewhere, you said, "Where's your ship going?" And if it was going where you wanted to go, well then you could get on board, pay a bit of extra money, the guy who had the cargo would uh, make a few bucks on the side. So there the Centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off, however you pronounce it, <laughs> So it didn't get very far but it's taken a long time to go a little distance here. And when the wind didn't allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmone and moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens near the the town of Lassia. And so they got down there and they went on the other side, the bottom side of Crete, to keep away from the strong winds. And they're about halfway along as you can see at this point. And much time had been lost in doing this. And the sailing had already become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. And they knew the prevailing winds in those days and they knew they were getting into the danger zone because after November there was a few months where nobody went sailing at all because it was just too dangerous. So Paul warns them. And uh, for those people who don't like to listen to older Christians, this is a... (laughs) we have able to listen to the older guys. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and great loss to ship and cargo and, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul says, he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Which I suppose is fairly sensible. Oh, they're the guys who know about sailing, theoretically. But at this point, nobody's listening to him. There he is. He's just at Fairhaven. He's warning them, guys. The trouble's coming. And since the harbour was unsuitable to winter, the majority decided that we should sail on. And see how far Phoenix is? It doesn't look very far on a map, does it? That we should did go to. Since the harbor was unsuitable for winter, well, a reasonable chance. And when a gentle wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. so they weighed anchor, they sailed along the shore of Crete, but before very long, a wind of hurricane force. Now we know about um, we don't call them hurricanes, we call them cyclones, so it's about cyclone strength. But uh, came along a nor'easter swept down the island, and the ship was caught and couldn't head into it. And so it gave way to it and they were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. The lifeboat would have been floating in the back there. And so now we go for the, the squiggly line. The unknown, where did they actually go? Interestingly, uh, Luke on board, the way it talks about what they did on the ship is actually studied by people who are into historical sailing things. Many nautical people study it with interest. and We see a few extra things which just add to the historicity of our story. Then they passed ropes under the ship to hold it together because they were afraid they'd run aground on the sandbars of surface and they lowered a sea anchor and they let the ship be driven along. And you know, sailors are feeling powerless when they take down all the sails, when they rope up the the ship to make it stronger and they just let the storm take them. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard and now they're getting desperate because the owner, who depends on that cargo for his livelihood, gives them permission to throw it overboard. So, you know, they're just scared witless. And, and, and then, on the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard, equipment necessary to operate the ship, until finally they just give up hope. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, I mean they're in black. And the storm continued raging. I finally gave up all hope of being saved. And I don't know how resilient you are. I don't know how much resistance you can cope with for being a Christian. I wonder if you've ever got to that point of giving up all hope of being saved. And I know that when you're at that point, you're like a drowning man clutching at straws. And some of us need to get to that point to listen. Maybe that's what happened when Paul speaks up in this time, they listen to him. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But nevertheless, now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you all the lives of those who sail with you. So keep courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as you told me. Nevertheless, bad news, <laughs> we must run aground on some island. Well, I'm sure they gave a bit of, bit of hope, a glimmer of hope. He was able to point out that, he remember what I told you, Paul was right about that. Maybe he'd be right about this too, that all our lives are going to be saved. But then on the 14th night, there's 14 nights of it, wow, we're still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. There we are, we're down now, getting close to Malta. And if you thought, I wonder what part of Malta? Well, there is a place called St. Paul's Bay to this day, and n- e- interestingly, there's a there's an oil tanker shipwrecked in the same place as we speak. But what did they do as they're heading to, to St. Paul's Bay? They took soundings, and they found the water was 120 feet deep, and a little bit later, it was only 90 feet. And then, afraid that they're going to be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Well, I've never been in a major storm which lasted 14 days. Been in cyclones lasted a day or two. The magnitude of this disaster is just incredible. And think about it, the darkness, no sky, that's how they navigated from the stars no GPS, no radar, they were profoundly lost. On top of being blown around, you've got no idea where you are, you're lost. And yeah, it was they didn't have stabilizers like the, the big ocean liners do nowadays. They didn't have engines to power on. And so you can understand why they didn't eat for 14 days. I think it's called seasickness. Best not to <laughs> have anything down there to come up. And so, oh, we're getting close to landing in an attempt to escape from the ship. The sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea. They're just pretending, oh, we're just going to lower some anchors from the bow. Paul might have overheard the schemings. He might have just been connected to the bush telegraph. But he said to them, think about it, guys, unless these men stay with the ship, these are the guys who know how to drive this thing, if they, unless they stay with us, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. And Paul takes up his responsibility, speaks up again. He got a word from the angel, after all. And so he's got a message for them, and it's an encouraging one. So just before dawn, Paul urges them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense. That's a whole pile of adrenaline, isn't it? And you've gone without food, you haven't eaten anything. So now I urge you. Take some food, because you need it to survive. And this is the encouraging thing. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks. And then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged. And they ate some food themselves. And altogether there were 276 of us on board. So it was a big ship for the time, 276. And when they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Well, they wouldn't need it anymore. And daylight comes. They didn't recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach. They decided to run the ship aground if they could. And that's the sort of thing you see in a movie, isn't it? Cut away the important hindrances. Jettison what's absolutely essential. Focus all your resources, one final, desperate, slow-motion run for the finish line. You can see a movie now, can't you? Everything else can go if we can just escape with our lives. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Rushing in and they struck a sandbar and ran aground, and the bows just stuck, wouldn't move. And the back end is getting broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. And then here's a little bit of the reality of uh, being a Roman soldier. If you were guarding someone and he got away, then you got the (laughs) the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And in that way, everyone landed safely, made it to land. And once safely on the shore, we found out the island was called Malta and the islanders showed us unusual kindness. built a fire, welcomed us all because it was raining and cold and those of us who've got evaporative air conditioners can understand just that cooling effect of the wind on water. These guys are drenched, they've swum to shore, there's a gale-force wind, they've got to be freezing. And then the Apostle Paul He's being useful, he's getting in, he's getting the fire going. And then, as if it wasn't bad enough to have 14 days in a leaky boat, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire a viper driven out by the heat fastens itself on its hands. And in the reaction of the people there, you you see the that idea I was talking about at the beginning of the sermon connection between your sinfulness and the circumstances of the life of life what did the islanders say? They saw the snake hanging from his hand and they said to each other oh this man must be a murderer for though he escaped from the sea the goddess justice was not allowed him to live. They wanted to blame him for bad stuff happening to him. But Paul's demonstrating A different reality. What did he do? He shook the snake off into the fire, suffered no ill effects. People were watching him like a hawk to see if he swells up and suddenly falls down dead. And after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, changed their minds. Ooh, he must be a god. Well, reality is that God had told Paul he was going to appear before Caesar. And so preserving his life from a snake bite, that was just part of fulfilling that promise. And the purposes of God in Paul's life were not going to be thwarted by a snake bite. And that really encourages me to think that snakes that bite us can't prevent the purposes of God from being fulfilled in our lives. Was Paul out of God's will because a snake bit him? No. Not at all. In fact, there are bigger opportunities to minister just about to open up. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His dad was crook, fever, dysentery. So Paul went in, prayed, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when that happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and they were cured and they honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, I guess in a different ship, (laughs) when they were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. And of course, that's the Apostle Paul. It doesn't say anything about him evangelising, but you can imagine, three months on an island, he's going to be preaching the gospel, isn't he? Every other place is gone there've been miracles they go with his preaching of the gospel. Which brings us finally to the last leg of the journey. They go from Malta up to Syracuse, Regium, Messina, Pompeii up to Putioli and uh, eventually he does make it to Rome. Uh, after three three months put out to sea in a ship that had wintered the In the island, it was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse, stayed there for three days, went on to Regium, on to Puteoli, and so on, and came to Rome. So was Paul in the will of God? Of course, at all times. God said he would go to Rome, and he did. And the misfortunes along the way, that with no particular concern to Paul. It was his call and his mission that he was focused on. And by the grace and provision of God, he gets the and he's got two years now to preach to visitors because people could come and see him. He's got two years to preach them, and then that opportunity to take the gospel to the very top of the Roman Empire, to Caesar himself. So to wrap it up, God is not a bodyguard who we employ to keep us from the misfortunes of life. He died on the cross to be with us in the misfortunes of life, not to remove us from all of them, though he does remove many at times. And he died and he rose to elevate our viewpoint, our perspective, to cause us to see that all of the misfortunes of this life are mere minnows in comparison to the while of a time, we will have an eternity with him. And when we live out of our understanding of that immense love God has for us and those around us, and when we draw deeply from that love of Christ, we become more than conquerors of anything which life can throw against us because we find something solid, we find something reliable and unmoving and dependable upon which to place all of our hopes, which is the love of Christ, which can never be removed from us. And we find we stop assessing whether we're in the will of God or not by how our circumstances are going, and we measure it by whether we're in the will of God by checking our lives daily against the Bible, against that inner voice of our consciences, against the Holy Spirit guiding us, by listening to wise counsel from one another, by studying any Christian resource available, not by our circumstances. My friends, deeply knowing the love of Christ is that good. It makes us more than conquerors. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that our understanding of your love will just be where we live, knowing that you love us and knowing that you love the brother and sister alongside us and knowing that our job is to pass your love on to them and to receive from them your love through them and to know that together We have an inheritance which makes us more than conquerors, no matter what life throws against us. Amen and hallelujah.